Welcome to Healthy Brain, Happy Body, a podcast for the Northeast Region Biofeedback Society. I'm your host, Dr. Saul Rosenthal. In this podcast, we explore the ever-fascinating connections between brain, body, health, and happiness. Today, we're joined by three expert clinicians connected with NADD, the National Association for the Dually Diagnosed, an organization expanding our knowledge of the unique needs of individuals diagnosed with intellectual disabilities and mental illness. NADD is a sponsor of the Northeast Region Biofeedback Society, and these three will present a free webinar on February 22nd. Dr. Beth Baral started her career as a live-in house parent in a group home, and over many years of service worked in a leadership capacity for multiple organizations nationally and in the state of Pennsylvania. Dr. Ginny Folknew recently retired as a social work clinical associate professor and an associate clinical director at Widener University. She has worked with people with intellectual and developmental differences for 50 years. Dr. Tim Barksdale is the Senior Executive Director of Clinical Services for Maricay, a multi-state organization providing developmental, behavioral health, and clinical services. He has won multiple awards for his service and sits on the boards of NADD and Friends Hospital in Pennsylvania. He's also the current president of the Pennsylvania Psychological Association. As a Pennsylvanian myself, it was great to talk with three people who are making a real difference for a vastly underserved and frequently misunderstood population, not just back in my home state, but in the national and international communities. We talked about how and why they are starting to integrate biofeedback, neurofeedback, and neuromodulation into the work. Well, I want to welcome you all to Healthy Brain, Happy Body. Thanks for joining us. This is, uh, we've got three people plus me here. That's more than I've ever had. So we'll see how this goes. Uh, and I'd like, I'd like to start with, with you, Tim. Um, in your organization, you are going to be bringing Beth and Ginny in to help with training. And I, I was wondering, can you tell, tell us about your organization, uh, what, it's, what it's doing, uh, what population it's serving? Hi, how are you? Thank you for inviting me. Um, so yeah, um, my name is Tim Barksdale. I'm the Senior Executive Director of Clinical Services for Merikey. And Merikey is in uh, about 12 states across the country. Um, but I'm also uh, representing NAD, National Association of Dual Diagnosis. I sit on their board of directors, and I'm also the chair of the Clinical Certification Committee. And then thirdly, um, president of the Pennsylvania Psychological Association. So I wear a few hats and, and all of them are interested in what we're gonna be talking about today. So yeah, I'm going to be really leaning on Beth to kind of mentor us through this process. When I went to, Beth runs something called the Capacity Building Institute, where she brings multidisciplinary approaches. Um, it's done it was started out in Pennsylvania I think she's doing it in other places now but during that time they provide education to clinicians and that's where I heard about neurofeedback biofeedback neuromodulation and you know there are approximately seven to eight million people with intellectual disability so when I say I'm, I'm the member of the National Association of Dual Diagnosis we're not talking about drug and alcohol we're talking about people with intellectual disability and co-occurring mental illness. So those are the two main diagnoses that we kind of focus on. Um, so we were really excited when I received the, the initial training um, from Beth and others about the possibilities of neurofeedback 
and what it could do um, for the population. You know, the, the most popular or the most prevalent um, portion of, of people with intellectual disabilities are mild. And let me just back up a little bit and make sure that our audience knows who we're talking about. So when we're talking about somebody with an intellectual disability, this is something that they're either born with or they acquired it before the age of 18. And they used to talk about um, doing IQ testing only, you know, and if you had an IQ below 70, then you had mild intellectual disability and, and it, it went from mild to moderate um, to severe to profound. Um, more recently, uh, around 2013, when the DSM-5 was updated, Diagnostic Statistical Man Manual was updated, um, they realized that we were capturing a lot of people that didn't qualify under that, that didn't really meet, meet that standard, and we really needed to look at adaptive functioning. You know, how's a person managing their lives? So if you have someone who may have a lower IQ, but they're able to um, develop relationships, they're able to um, have a job and just manage their everyday lives, then maybe we're talking more of a learning disability than somebody with an intellectual disability. So now adaptive functioning plays a large part of that. And when you are just below two standard deviations, of, um, from the population in terms of how you are able to um, operate cognitively just in that zone, then you're mild intellectual disability. And there is adjustments that can be made so that you can participate in therapy, so that you can, um, just with a little help, you can manage your life. But when we're talking about um, less adaptive functioning and less um, cognitive functioning, um, that's when you're in the severe um, and profound ranges, and that's what that's the zone where I got particularly excited. I mean, Beth will tell you that this is this is great for the entire population, um, but I got excited because some people don't have access to language, and there are times when there are issues of um, um, behavioral issues in the community um, and in their homes, and they may be dealing with a lot of trauma. And so when they participate in neurofeedback or some form of neuromodulation, um, we're seeing some improvements. So with that, I'll, I'll, I'll turn it over to the experts. Well, so you're seeing uh, neurofeedback and neuromodulation as being potentially helpful, not just for the population, well, both for the entire population, but what's particularly interesting for you are sort of more, more uh, profound issues where there may not even be language, where there has to be behavior change and that neurofeedback and neuromodulation can be helpful with that. Correct. So yeah, let, let's open it up to, to, to Beth and Ginny. Uh, how do we solve this problem? What, what, how, how does neurofeedback or neuromodulation help us? So um, I'd like to, I guess, jump in first and just do a little history. I've been working everything from a direct supporter to working with government around this population f since 1976. And uh, the first few years when I was a live-in house parent, I was living with people with extremely challenging behaviors in a day when people didn't recognize trauma and they didn't think that anything but behavior, what we called back then behavior modification, could contain people. Uh, and when I was living with folks so closely, 
I noticed that it was deeper than that, that the people that I was living with had had serious traumas and abuses in their lives. And I noticed also that um, paying attention to what they ate, we, we took sugar out of the house because I had read Sugar Blues in the 70s, and we um, started, we exercised, walked, did all kinds of neat stuff. We ate together as a family, and I found that some of the behaviors that we had been observing seemed to uh, settle down. So that was always of interest to me that we could get to behavior by changing the body, what we're eating, what we're doing. Fast forward, I uh, learned about EMDR 20-some years ago and did a study on using EMDR with folks with intellectual differences and um, was very taken by the bilateral stimulation element of EMDR and seeing that uh, even for folks who couldn't speak uh, in our study that using bilateral stimulation had a big effect on how uh, upset they were and how uh, self-abusive and how they slept and we taught the families around them how to use bilateral stimulation in the middle of the night to help people calm down. That got me really interested in biofeedback and neurofeedback because I thought the way in is the body and being able to help the brain. So I, I've been keenly interested in this for a few years uh, for a few years and we're going to be talking a lot in our webinar about case examples of where we've been using both neuro um, neurofeedback and various kinds of neuroentrainment devices which we find very useful uh, in residential settings where people may not be able to have access to other modalities like neurofeedback per se. Um, so I'm going to pass this to Ginny and then Ginny will pass it back when you're ready and we'll see. Ginny and I have been, um, been work partners since I guess early 80s, late 70s. Very long time. Yep. So I, I'd say that my, my path to neurofeedback and neuroentrainment and understanding more about the brain and embracing more about the brain follows a similar path uh, that, that Beth has taken. Um, I also started out working in direct care um, in 1972 at a place that was a big facility and um, walked away from that experience, both in love with working with people that have all kinds of differences and also understanding a lot about what not to do to people. Um, and that I'd say, in addition to what Beth just talked about, I, I'd say that I've spent a good deal of time unknowing things that I was taught about people. That in order to be able to really understand folks and offer true support, uh, many times I've had to go, nope, that thing that somebody told me a long time ago it doesn't ring true and I need to unlearn that and, and I need to be open to, to new things. And so early on, I certainly learned that many of our friends that have some kind of intellectual or developmental difference um, are often not with differences. They can be highly intelligent people trapped inside bodies that just don't work. 
And, um, and that really changed my mind about what people's capacities are. I'd say that I'd add to that since I've been on the planet for a pretty long time, that uh, I grew up thinking that when you turn 30, it was all downhill after that. And, um, and I can say that at 70, I realized that that's not at all true, that we learn and grow and our brains can change and that our capacities are really about uh, continuing to use them um, so that we don't lose them. And that makes me think that the people that we've worked with for, for a long time have also the capacity to gain new skills and new ways of being and new ways of thinking. And that I think that as we kind of move through that time of learning more about trauma, which we did in the 80s and 90s, um, long before it was a thing, because now it's a thing, that we just endeavored to learn more and more about the brain because we learned that our brains are changed by trauma. And if we don't really understand that, then we again can't really provide the kinds of supports that people need. And so the more that I've learned about not just the brain, but neurofeedback and neuroentrainment, I know now that there's lots that we can do to actually help people um, be able to think more clearly or feel better. You know, there's lots of um, lots of chances for that. And so, uh, and I'd say the other really big reason <laughs> that I ended up being involved in neurofeedback and such is because Beth and I have been friends and colleagues for a long time, and sometimes her interests became my interest too because <laughs> yeah, we uh, we've known each other for such a long time. There is a way this can kind of creep up on you. All of you are actually talking about how our perceptions or our understanding of people who who may have intellectual differences, how that's changed and shifting to perhaps more of a focus on functioning rather than, you know, IQ, whatever that means. And that really, to, to me, that fits very, very well with neurofeedback uh, and neuroentrainment, sort of applied psychophysiology. I, I, I see it as very much a approach that is functional in nature. So how, how are you using it? How is neurofeedback being used in this population. So um, before we get into that, right now, I um, support about 50 clinicians across the country. And they support BCBAs, you know, uh, board certified um, behavior analysts and behavior specialists, behavior support professionals. And so the focus has been until now, you know, correcting behavior. You know, um, so there's been a great move and, and we have a book coming out for Nat that kind of addresses that we're looking at the whole person. We're doing a biopsychosocial approach. Um, and um, me and Jenny work for a company, um, uh, Philadelphia Coordinated Healthcare, where we really put a focus of that so that that area understood that you're looking at the entire person. Um, so we're looking at, you know, what are the medical issues that are that are playing into this? What are the psychiatric and psychological issues? Um, what are the environmental? 
And so um, I'm really excited about this because I think that pushes us further into looking at the entire person. Yeah, and um, I'd like to just jump in a little ahead of what you're suggesting, Saul, because what you're saying is we're going to get to. Um, but that is uh, trying to help people understand that the brain does continue to change. When we all started out in the field, we were told like six years old, it's over, you know. And then we noticed that stuff was going on in the world of um, traumatic brain injury, people who had strokes, or people who were doing rehab that never passed over to the ID world. That we, we still act as if the brain stops at six years old. What you see is what you get, just try to cope. And so we've been um, really trying to help people understand that the brain is constantly moving. And what we need to do is at, at first set up an everyday life where everything that can enhance brain development is in place. Because I can do a lot of cool neurofeedback, but if your brain's starving or you're dehydrated, it's not going to really stick. But if I'm, if I'm helping someone um, develop a lifestyle that has plenty of oxygen going to their brain, they're fully hydrated, and they have all these neurofactors at play, then what we're going to do is make a bigger impact and new neuropathways will be able to develop. And so we, 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 want to, we start by training, and in the chapter we wrote for NAD, we say we want to start with this infrastructure, and now we move on to additional supports. So in addition to using EMDR, I've used uh, neuroentrainment devices like um, the Mind Alive very successfully with folks with um, different kinds of brain damage, also a lot of trauma stories are really helping them settle in, calm down enough to be able to avail themselves of the other kinds of therapies that people are you know, if you can't get to the table, if you can't sit down, if you can't focus, if you're so anxious, you can't sleep at night, you're agitated, I can talk to you jump blue in the face. It's not going to make a difference. But if I can help your brain be more receptive, then that's another story. I've also been using um, alpha stem with folks to help them calm down and now touch points. So one example is I, I just came from doing a three-day trauma immersive with some individuals who have dual diagnosis. Pretty extreme, in and out of psych hospitals, very uncomfortable. The very first day they're like, can't really focus, you know, not sleeping well, they say, you know, we're having struggles being in a circle together. And, and we do everything from make healthy food to teach about what happens to our body from trauma. And then we start using some of these devices as well. And the change in three days in these women who were saying things like, last night I finally slept, I can't remember sleeping that well. And being able to sit in a group and say warm and loving things to each other and not react in the same way was, was amazing to their staff who were there. We had them trying on the devices as well because uh, if they're not wired, it helps everybody else not be wired. Uh, in another situation, which I will talk at more length when we um, do the webinar, uh, is a man who I have worked with and known for since he was 12 and he's 58 now. And 
he went from a couple of years ago, if you say, you know, how old are you? He goes, maybe four, <laughs> that would be his answer. Um, what time is it? No clue. You know, all this kind of not being able to pull together things in his world, having trouble being articulate, saying to me, stuff just goes around in circles in my head. I can't get things out. Now, having done years of EMDR um, early on, but then moving into the mind alive, as well as an hour of bicycling in the morning on his machines and eating a better diet and living a happier life, he's able to say, well, my point is, and start telling you something, who says, how old are you? He goes, I'm 58. I'll be 59 in May. When I ask him what time it is, it's two o'clock and we're going to be leaving at 2.30. So I, we only have half an hour left. You know, I go, whoa, <laughs> who are you and what happened? At this late age, he is like a whole different guy. Always been a great guy, but he's so much more on top of his game and in control of his life. No longer doing things like cutting himself. No longer doing things like throwing things out the window, like furniture. <laughs> Big turnarounds. And I, 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 I think that one of the key issues, you know, is it's been the, the neuroentrainment. Because some of the other stuff we've been putting in for years, it's when it all came together with that that we saw the major changes. And Beth, I, I, you bring up a, a lot of things that make me think about, I mean, first of all, our audience needs to know that the average person with an intellectual disability is not living alone. And a lot of times they're not living with their family. They're living in group homes. And that means that strangers, a lot of times, are the ones who are responsible for their care. As Beth and, and, and Jenny mentioned, you know, we all started out as direct support professionals, you know, um, before we even got to college, you know, we were providing these supports. And now, Miraki provides a lot of residential services, so we have to train people as they come in. And so our shift has been to really look at the things that, that Beth was identifying in terms of Maslow's basic needs. You know, what is the person eating? What is the thing that's doing that's providing safety? You know, what's, what's, what's in the environment that's going to prevent and keep that trauma down? And do they have that sense of belonging? So when we're doing that, it kind of sets them up to be a lot more successful if we're then moving on to um, – some of the things that we're offering with the, with the neurofeedback. So you have to provide the environment, the context that supports growth, supports physical, social, uh, in, psychological growth in order to, to then move to these more specific, I guess, specific uh, interventions. Yeah, because I'd hate to, I hate the analogy of, you know, these adults with intellectual disability when people compare them to children, but you know, you don't put a child in therapy without the parents being involved because you can teach them all you want to, but if they're going back to an environment that's not changing, then they're not going to progress. And, and that's really the same for all of us. You know, if we cannot control our environment and if we don't change the way we eat, if we don't change the thing that might be threatening us that might cause that trauma, um, then a lot of growth is not going to happen. I think, Tim, that you're bringing up something that's really important and, and relates also to much of our work over a long period of time of trying to help people see, reframe the way that they look at people that we 
might encounter. And that um, I know that in the, all the 50 years that I've been working in this field, that it is more often a person's attitude or their beliefs that get in the way of the opportunities that some of our friends might benefit from. And I think that relates to also to things like neuroentrainment and neurofeedback, because sometimes people are not, they don't know about this and what is this? And they can become uncomfortable or nervous about it. What are you going to do to that person? And, um, and so the more that we can talk about it, the more that we can teach people about what these things are and how they can be helpful, I think the better the chances are that the folks that we support are going to be supported by those caregivers who sometimes we have to change their minds about, you know, how they, what they think somebody can participate in or do, what their capacities are. So we have to really treat these people as people. Is that, is that what you're suggesting? <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. I, I'm really, I'm really, well, I'm struck by a lot of what you're saying, but particularly Beth, you talking about using entrainment with the person you've been working with since age 12 and, and how that's made such a big change. And I'm curious uh, from either you or from Ginny, what's going on? How, what, what, how is this affecting the brain in a way that allows for that calming to occur? Ginny, I've all, and I've talked about using neuroentrainment also as a road to neurofeedback to try to, some of the folks that we support, their brain is not very powerful in certain wavelengths. And uh, so getting the oomph of having alpha pushed through the brain is some, and the brain saying, oh, that feels pretty good, makes it easier for when they are getting neurofeedback to learn how to generate and modulate it themselves. And what, what we've been teaching the, the people themselves that we've been working with is that when we're, uh, when we've been hurt, when we've been scared, and when we're stressed, and this can be anything from pre-birth to current, the limbic system gets supercharged, the amygdala gets supercharged, and the way we explain it to them is what happens is it's almost like a ceiling gets put across the brain to protect you, because we don't need to be stopping and talking and thinking and you know, kibitzing with friends when we are trying to stay alive. And what words we use are more like bullet words, like FY, you know, and we're not good at reasoning things out because we're supposed to run or fight if we're, when we're that scared, right? The big job is to stay alive. Well, when that's happening, I can talk to you blue in the face and it's not going to calm you down. But if I can use one of these devices to help either send a whole different wave pattern across, like an alpha stem or a series of stimulation through the eyes and the sound ear to ear with mind alive, it starts to calm down that, that limbic system, allowing the thinking part of the brain, the social part of the brain to come into to gear again. And that's one of our goals is to give someone, you know, we tell them, you know, out of control means they're out of control. <laughs> they cannot control this. When we've been acting as if it means they're out of my control, I can't make them do something differently. But it's to realize that this person is doing what they're doing because they're 
terrified, enraged, whatever is happening, and we need to use all everything we can to help them calm down. And that's what I think the big thing about these adaptive equipment really are. Mm-hmm. And then Ginny for the neurofeedback piece. So I, I just want to add to the neuroentrainment device um, perspective in that, you know, that it's fairly easy to pick up an alpha stim and take it someplace and help somebody try it out. And it is more affordable than using neurofeedback. So it makes it possible for people to, 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 to work on what's happening in their brain um, without always knowing what's happening in their brain. I think the benefit of being able to use something like neurofeedback then is that neurofeedback provides us with first some information about where those waves are situated. If if we want we want to have our thinking waves in the front of our brain and we want to have our sleeping waves in the back of our brain, but sometimes that gets mixed up. And when that gets mixed up, we don't know what's what's going on. And for some people, as Beth is talking about the back of the brain getting really activated or fired up and preventing the front of the brain from working, it's also possible that there can be really slow waves in the front of the brain that then stimulate those fast waves to try to counteract that. And people's brain become exhausted by trying to manage all the time fast brain waves, slow brain waves, brain waves where they're not really needed at times that they're not really needed. And so neurofeedback allows us to take a look at where those waves are primarily situated. We can do something called a mini cue or a clinical cue that takes sensors and and actually records where the brain waves are and we can do an an analysis and then um, some planning. So for instance, there are about six different kinds of um, attention deficit disorder. And some of them relate to fast brain waves and some of them relate to slow brain waves and some of them relate to both. And if you don't know which kind of attention deficit disorder somebody has, then they're going to get a treatment it's like a shot in the dark. We don't really know. And we've been doing that to the people that we support for a really long time. People are taking all kinds of medications for not all the best reasons and not always because they have an accurate diagnosis because they don't. In neurofeedback, we're not so focused on a diagnosis as much as we're focused on how is the brain operating. And so once we kind of get a picture of what's going on, then what we do is we can use neurofeedback as a way to teach the brain to lessen some waves, to increase other waves, to do that in different parts of the brain and without like inserting anything into the brain. It's just a matter of when the brain does it the way that we'd like it to do, it gets a reinforcement. And sometimes that reinforcement is ever so simple. It's just a sound or the uh, looking at something. So a visual reinforcement or a sound reinforcement tells the brain, yep, you're onto something there. Now we need to practice that over and over again because we're trying to change a brain pathway. Our brains get into a habit. 
it's all about our survival. And so it keeps us alive, even if we don't have a healthy or happy life, it keeps us alive. And so what we'd like to do is to be able to teach the brain that there's an easier way. So if I can reduce those slow waves in the front, then the, the fast waves in the, in the, that are happening in the back can, can take a chill pill, you know, can kind of relax and not be so activated. Or maybe we need a little more activation in the front and more of those slow waves in the back so people sleep better. And that, I mean, it's a, probably a lot more complicated than what I'm describing, um, but it's also pretty simple in some ways. It, your brain gets it. And I've seen this as I've worked with people over and over again. Pretty soon you see it happening and you're like, wow, this is pretty amazing. Are you enjoying this podcast? Want to hear more from our guests? Come to their NRBS webinar. We have both free and very inexpensive continuing education programs. So whatever level of interest you have in biofeedback, neurofeedback, and neuromodulation, you'll find plenty to choose from at nrbs.org. Follow the links in the show notes. We hope to see you at an upcoming program. So when, when you're working with, with people, maybe starting with either uh, alpha stim or the uh, entrainment and then moving to neurofeedback, how, how long are you working with them before you see meaningful changes? It's a loaded question, I know, because I'm sure it's very different for everybody. But <laughs> what, what are you kind of seeing? Well, I, I have to say that some folks don't respond at all. I mean, I, I don't want to say it, everything's a panacea for everybody. But I've, I've had one session with people, and usually do, where they, you see a change in affect in that session. Now, will it carry on? No, it needs to have more practice than that, you know. But the, usually with judges, it seems like it's doing something because if it's not, they're not coming back. So we want to make sure that um, we look at that. And I, you know, I, I say, you know, how's this feel? And someone will say, my head feels better. And that's enough for us to start going on. So I see change. Now, it often takes many, many repeats for them to be more independent in keeping that change going. But the, it's heartening. And the staff remark on the difference that they're seeing very quickly. On the other hand, we've had situations where someone is clearly someone who would benefit and the staff won't let them do it because they've never heard of this stuff. And that's um, pretty uh, depressing. They'd rather see the person go back into a psych hospital than try and alpha stim, you know. So that's, how, that's why I spend more time doing teaching and training of staff than anything else so that when somebody like Ginny's pitching, they're ready to catch. Right. You know? And so I guess, Tim, you're, you're the catcher here. What, what, what did you see that convinced you to, to bring this on board in your own organization? Um, you know, we were able to watch videos where people actually made change. Um, you know, we heard from clinicians who were providing the services um, and uh, just giving us how people improve from baseline. So all of that helped to definitely contribute to what we were doing. You know, our, 
we were responsible for really just kind of educating staff to let them know, first of all, you know, we don't give medication for behavior. We are trying to treat psychiatric issues and that we are looking at changing the environment before we look at trying to over-medicate anything. So again, this is an addition to the things that we've known about people, um, and this gives us one more tool. And it just so much fits, it just so fits into the the functional model of, I don't want to call it disease because we're not just talking about disease, we're talking about all of us. We, we all have our, our functional quirks and our functional uh, strengths and uh, apparent weaknesses. But I can see where building, sort of, you're, it sounds like you're almost rebuilding the environment in which people are living and in which the treatment is occurring to, to be truly uh, biopsychosocial. I know that it's a, that's a word that's overused these days in healthcare, along with evidence-based. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah. And right. just the, the, these are areas, of course, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in the choir, so I'm already convinced that this is doing it, but it's mm-hmm. good to get this word out and to see it being used in larger organizations like Mirti. Yeah, so we're trying to, you know, like you said, we're building inside and out. We're looking at the environment. We're looking at how the brain is working. We're looking at how the body is working. So yeah, so it's kind of a when we can a complete rehaul, uh, overhaul. And, and you, know, you, you mentioned research, and uh, Ginny and I are both ex-professors and <laughs> retired professors. <laughs> and, um, and of course, we wish we could say uh, we've done a study where the only change has been uh, the only thing we did was either the neuroentrainment device or the neurofeedback. But we don't have that kind of um, time we're trying to save lives here. And so we have to do the full court press and just use our own judgment comparing before and afters and things like that in their life, what was missing, what's changed. But to know that that we're like these rose windows with all these colors and we have to be doing it all at once so that person isn't going to go kill themselves or, or spend their whole lives on super amounts of neuroleptics, which is what happens for many people in this country. I think it's it's important that we continue to remind people that the, that that people are complex and they've had complex lives and we can't ever tell by looking at a person what they've experienced. And so sometimes there are people that could benefit from something like this who don't have challenging behavior um, but could also sleep better or feel better or be able to express their emotions in a different way. I think we just have to always remind ourselves and others that that we have to come at it from every direction possible to try to support people. Yep. And I have I wanted to add too that um, neuroentrainment and neurofeedback together can also be beneficial. I mean, I uh, work with somebody where during the time that we're um, using neurofeedback in a session they're also wearing touch points, which provide alternating vibration uh, and something similar to EMDR, bilateral stimulation at the same time. And um, I've certainly seen more progress in using both neurofeedback and the touch points at the same time. Uh, Or using um, some of the other neuroentrainments ahead of time and going directly into the neuro feedback when the brain is already in a slightly different state. 
I just want to say that when we did our initial work, um, a lot of times folks would just say, well, this person didn't have any trauma that we know of. So we do biographical timelines where we go from pre-birth to now and analyze it with the team. Builds their compassion, get to see how many places things have fallen apart, and they're more willing to try this new stuff out. Yeah, yeah. The, the other thing is, I mean, we would love to move this field to where we're not you know, firefighting and, and dealing with behaviors, but we're looking at enhancing the person. You know, as Jenny said, you know, can, can a person improve on how they're sleeping, you know, so that they can have a, a better quality of life. So that's always the goal. Well, hopefully getting it into more mainstream and larger organizations will help move it in that direction. I think, you know, at this point, it almost seems like for neurofeedback anyway, and neuromodulation, because insurance doesn't really reimburse for it, it really is an out of pocket. So there's sort of a population, a piece of the population that can afford it. And then there's where where it's either being done in in a volunteer way or there's larger grants, but it, it hasn't really permeated into healthcare. And there's a lot of reasons for that and a lot of discussion about why that may or may not be. But the more we can get it into organizations and show that it works. And I guess you have to start with with populations where the change is really big for for the healthcare system to really accept it more and then hopefully move it more into enhancing enhancing uh, our lives quality of life whether it's although i would argue sleep is a big deal uh sleep or maybe lower level anxieties lower level depression things like that but getting it into bigger organizations i think is is something that we really have to do and it's great that it's happening yeah, I mean, we're talking about, you know, even current issues, you know, I mean, COVID and the brain fog, you know, or maybe that'll bring it greater in, into the main, mainstream as more people realize that they need support and, and brain health. More receptivity since COVID, by the way, that's been a positive side effect of COVID as people realize, oh, we need to do something about this. Yeah, <laughs> um, that's one reason I'm... I'm, I'm glad we have this Capacity Building Institute in Pennsylvania and now in seven other states where we do a session or more on neuroentrainment, neurofeedback and its relevance to, to the most challenging people in the states. And then the, the teams work around that to make recommendations back to their, their state folks because I think that's, you know, so one of the things that your references is we've got to find ways to um, speed up people's um, exposure to this and understanding the, the value. I also think that it's um, really uh, so very important to, um, as you mentioned earlier, Beth, to have caregivers try out what we're suggesting. And that um, that I have found, like even teaching about the brain, which sounds like, you know, maybe like watching paint dry or something, um, that when people start to understand how that relates to them, how their brain is um, is operating, and why it is that they might be reacting. Because many of the people that work in our field have their own trauma histories, have you know um, serious experiences of their own in many ways. And so, I think that being able to help people understand better how it could help them 
um, would make it possible for them to be able to uh, help other people. And the other thing I just wanted to say is sometimes when we start talking about the brain and then we can look at the brain and we can say, you know, you have some extra waves in this one place where you don't really need them. And we can work on that. People find that to be a relief to be able to say, that's my brain. It's not me as a human being. This is what's happening to me, not, not a reflection of who I am. And so some, some people find that to be whew, a relief, you know? I don't have to blame you. Yeah, in the language that you use. Yep, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, and the language that you use makes it more accessible. We're like, oh, okay, we got to move these waves around. All right, I, I can understand that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that that's really a key, that people really do understand that, whereas medications, I think, is a lot harder to understand. And when we talk about, well, serotonin this or serotonin that, which, of course, we know isn't even even accurate. But when you can show people their brain maps uh, or, or talk to them about, well, you should be, you know, thinking in the front and sleeping in the back, that makes sense to people. And I think that it, it really helps them, well, buy into our model, the model that we're, we're, we're trying to use, but also really gives them a better sense of, I don't have a better word for it right now, ownership of their own brain. Yes, and that I think, if we we can give that to people, uh, is is a real feat. The other great great thing about neurofeedback, just to touch on, is not only more or less; it also helps the brain talk to itself. That things that cross the midline, they get different. So we know people, for example, who have great receptive verbal abilities, but can't organize themselves to speak it out. And we're finding that things like neurofeedback have been very helpful with people. Even, even the mind alive with the person I referenced, his ability to coordinate his thinking and his speaking has gone way up, which people would have thought was impossible. So uh, there's one other factor, and that is um, we're discovering that a lot of folks have a lot of pain, and um, including migraine pain and uh, that that will also heighten arousal and drive up challenging behaviors. And that if, for a lot of these folks, using the, uh, the, the alpha sim has really helped with those, not only the pain itself, but the brain's recycling of pain, you know, and, and breaks that pattern. And then the relief that people have. And then you can show the staff, you see the difference between the person in pain and the person who's relieved in terms of their receptiveness to you and their agitation and all that. So when we can do those kinds of visuals with people, they then they start getting it and getting invested and getting more creative with how they can help support. Is there anything we haven't covered that anybody would like me to bring up? Now, this is probably controversial, so you may not want to bring this up. Ooh, no, but, I absolutely do. <laughs> I mean, some of the things that we've been seeing that people are called psychotic and are put on neuroleptics for the rest of their lives. And I, I, I mean, I just had a, uh, a consult with a guy who was, could not get out of bed, could not even really raise his hand, stop being able to talk. And they said it was because he was psychotic and he 
uh, he was medicated for that. Um, and uh, when we did his biographical timeline and I interviewed family and stuff like that, we found that he had a long history of seizure disorders. And that, in fact, these rare episodes of seeing fire and things like that were actually seizure activity. And to control that seizure in the moment would have been one thing, but then to put him on all that neuroleptics after that, that took away a year of his life and when that happened. When using neurofeedback with someone who's trained in that particular bent of it can be really helpful. And I'm wondering how many people are labeled psychotic when in fact, you know, there's a thing up there called the brain that we've only known for the last 10 years what that was, but that there are things about firing in the brain that we're just learning about. Yeah, and also a lot of times trauma responses are being interpreted as psychotic, you know, whereas they may be reliving an experience, you know. They're all related, you know, and the problem when, when, when we don't get to talk together as fields, we don't get to hear what's going on somewhere else. And all of a sudden, you know, wow, things make sense. I think what sometimes we forget is that our diagnoses are heuristics and the brain doesn't really care what <laughs> we call it. Yeah. It's going to do what it's going to do. Yeah. And <laughs> so, you, you know, just to base a, psycho a diagnosis of psychosis on behavior, we kind of, that's what we do. And we kind of have to, I'm not faulting anyone for that, but it does certainly, once you make, once you go down one diagnostic pathway, you're closing off other possibilities. And, and I imagine this does happen. Well, we know it happens that people are diagnosed with psychosis who either have seizure disorders or have a trauma histories. So they're not really being helped. And the uh, antipsychotic medication often will make it worse. And that's one of the advantages of doing the EEG work. They can sometimes pick up the paroxysms and other funky EEG that that you know a good neurologist could can see. But so many people who are diagnosed with psychosis or bipolar disorder, they don't get the EEG done. And yet we're using anti-seizure meds for them. And when they work, it's probably because there's some kind of paroxysm going on. It would be nice to see it. But that perhaps is, 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 is for another episode. Let us know when you do it, because I'd like to oh. hear it. <laughs> well, you should listen to all of them. In fact, the, the episode prior to this one, we did, I, I did talk with Shari Johansson about long COVID. So we, we are seeing neurofeedback has a, a role to play in trying to manage some of the fatigue and some of the cognitive issues with that as well. And as we're wrapping up, I, I just want to kind of ask each of you, what's one thing that our listeners should take from our conversation? Well, I mean, I can, yeah, I, I can start. I mean, if you just have a better understanding of our population, you know, uh, people with intellectual disability and co-occurring mental illness, um, not just for, you know, your everyday people, but, you know, when they did a, a research study, they, they realized that 80% of physicians are not trained to work with this population. When I did my dissertation and I was uh, surveying therapists, people said they, they never, you know, they may have had one class, 
that talked about behavior modification. But in terms of actually working with folks, they didn't have that. And until people have that practical experience with working with the population, then they're missing out on a lot. Yeah, I'd like people to know that there's no such thing as a dead end, that people's brains evolve always if we do the right thing. Yes, I'd go back to something I said earlier, and that is that we all always have to be open to unknowing things that we've been taught, because as new information becomes available, if we get stuck in thinking in one way, we not only limit the people that we're supporting, but we limit ourselves. And I think we should work on constantly unknowing what we know. Yeah, we, we need yeah. to become associative thinkers. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe neurofeedback can help us with that. Too. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I really want to thank all of you for joining together today. If our listeners want to find out more about you and your work, uh, where, where should they go? Uh, I'll put information into uh, the show notes as well, but what's something that people should know about the work you all are doing? I mean, you can definitely send people to websites. I think it's thenadd.org mm -hmm. um, where you can find out about the National Association of Dual Diagnosis. Um, there's www.mirakey.org. So yeah, those those are some some resources. And what's what is the uh, NADD, the book? that's coming out soon. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, Ginny and I have a chapter in it and we, Ginny, you have the name? <laughs> uh, here it is. Harmonizing yeah. the Brain and Body for a Happier Life is our chapter. And the book is, uh, wait, I've got it, hold on. The book is called The Good Stuff, Practical Positive Supports for People with Intellectual Disabilities and Co-Occurring mental illness and um, it's it's uh, co-authored and edited by uh, Dr. Uzama Price and Dr. Dan Baker and it's about to come yeah. out soon. So we can get it soon. Yeah. Yeah. I have a chapter in there as well. I, I deal with um, um, cultural issues and therapy. So Beth, where, where can people find out more about other work you're doing after after we've read the chapter? Right, right now, um, with an organization called CampHillSultane.org, and I'm also the Capacity Building Institute for Pennsylvania, and the Capacity Building Institute through the National uh, Association of State DD Directors, NASD. And and how about you, Jenny? So I'd say that my um, I am a retired working person, so I'm still working uh, as an educator at Widener, teaching about trauma and learning about how to work with people or understand people better who have intellectual differences. Um, I've been working as a neurofeedback practitioner with a variety of people that I don't yet have an office per se. People could reach me through Sultane because that's one of the places where I work, or they could reach me by my email. I drag Ginny everywhere I go. This is <laughs> so wherever you are, Ginny will be as well. Pretty much. Yep. That's right. Well, again, thank you so much for joining me here. It's been really interesting. And I, I could keep this conversation going for a long time. And we'll look forward to hearing what you all have to say at the webinar. 
Well, thank you so much for having right. us. Yeah, and... thank you for having us yeah. all. It's a great thank opportunity. You. It's been great. You've been listening to Healthy Brain, Happy Body, a production of the Northeast Region Biofeedback Society. Go to nrbs.org to find out more about the organization, including our trainings, monthly webinars, and yearly conference. Our guests today were Drs. Beth Baral, Ginny Folknew, and Tim Barksdale. Find out more about them and their work in the show notes. Also, go to the show notes to register for their free webinar or see a recording of it. You can also subscribe to this podcast by clicking the subscribe here link or wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoy listening to us, please subscribe, rate us, and leave reviews at Apple Podcast or wherever you listen. Reviews do help us get more listeners, and that's more people who can learn about and benefit from biofeedback and neurofeedback. Also, let us know what you think by sending us email. Our address is healthybrain at nrbs.org. Healthy Brain Happy Body is produced and edited by me. The theme music is Catch It by Coma Media. Be sure to join us on our next episode as we continue to explore the keys to our well-being on Healthy Brain Happy Body.